0: Now please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We continue our study through Luke's Gospel. I'll give you a heads up as you're turning to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. And I will be reading from the ESV this morning, uh, so I don't have a page number for you. Uh, but if you have a, a pew Bible, I'm sure uh, you'll be able to find it quite easily. Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and reading through verse 17, but I give you a forewarning We have just two more sermons in Luke's Gospel before we break for the summer. Uh, Spoken with the session, uh, and we together have decided that it would be helpful to have a series through the Proverbs for the summer. I'm not quite sure what that's going to look like yet. Uh, It might be sort of a topical study as we gather and group different Proverbs uh, dealing with different topics, Um, but uh, that's what we'll be studying together for the summer, Uh, and so we will make it. Lord willing, uh, a little bit further in Luke chapter 7 before we break, and then in the fall we will come back and continue where we have been already for a number of months. But today, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11 and reading through verse 17. Hear now uh, the word of the Lord before we read God's word. Let's pray together. gracious and righteous and glorious. Lord, we pray that you would speak. Your servants are listening. We confess that we are as little children. We know neither how to go out nor to come in, and we need the wisdom of the Lord and your Holy Spirit working among us today. We thank you that your word is living and active. We pray that it would lay us bare, and that you would expose our hearts and our needs and show us how Christ meets all of our needs show us the riches that we have in him and his compassion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here now, God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people." This report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. According to uh, the latest statistics in the Journal of Science, the average person speaks an average of 16,000 words per day. In case you were wondering, Uh, That number holds true for both genders. So no, women are not actually, uh, on average, more talkative than men. There are some personality differences that change that. Some people are more talkative. Some people are a bit quieter. But all in all, uh, all things being equal, 16,000 is a pretty good rough number for most of us. And that means that we speak, uh, on average, 5.8 million words every year the average American lifetime, more than 440 million words. And if you think about it, I suppose the vast majority of all those words are probably inconsequential. It's all the small talk, right? Pass the butter, please. There are four. It's all the chatter that we fill our days with. Most of our lives, most of the time, are probably filled with weightless words, and yet there are some words that are powerful words that have the power to shape us and to define us. Sean and Leanne Tui are the couple whose family inspired the movie The Blind Side. In their book they tell the story of a congressional program uh, that awards awards internships to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. These are late teenagers who were never adopted and they receive uh, internships, maybe somewhere working in the government system. Well, One such young man received an internship working for a senator and as they recall, the senator came into his, uh, his office early one morning for a meeting and found that his intern was already there, hard at work, reorganizing the entire mailroom, which wasn't actually his job. And the senator said to him, that's amazing. The mailroom has never looked so clean. You did a great job. Moments later, he saw that the intern was standing there with tears streaming down his cheeks. And the senator asked him, I'm sorry, did I say something to offend you? Did I... I say something wrong, and the intern said, no, sir, that that is the first time in my entire life anyone has ever told me that I did something good. It's a small thing. It was just just a few words, but those words were powerful. Those words were at least as powerful as the absence of those kinds of words had been for 19-some years. And you know the power of words in your own life. It's the power of the promises that you make to your children when they're scared. It's the weight of the insults that have haunted you for longer than you care to admit. It was the first time she said, I love you. And it's the relationship that you both know is falling apart. You're afraid to say it out loud because as soon as you say it, well, then it's true, isn't it? You see, some of the 16,000 words we say every day are incredibly powerful. Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and it's true. Death and life in the tongue. Yet it was never more true for anyone than it was for Jesus. His words have the power not just to impress us, not just to shape us or to wound us. Jesus' words have the power of resurrection. They have the power of hope. I say to you, young man, arise. And the dead man sat up. And this is what God's people find when we read this passage. This is what uh, the widow in this story learned, that Jesus speaks hope to grieving hearts. Jesus speaks hope to grieving hearts. Now, we want to listen to Jesus and to his words today in this passage. But before we can listen to his words, we have to see Jesus' compassion. This is our first point. It's the compassion of Jesus. It happened just about two miles south of Jesus' hometown. And so within, uh, just south of Jesus' hometown, within a two hours walk, you could have been back at the gates of the city uh, where angry men tried to throw him off a precipice and to his death. But he wasn't in Nazareth, he was in Nain. And Jesus had come with a great crowd following behind him. It was, it was something like a victory parade. It says that there was a great crowd and he had just come from Capernaum. The place where he had raised the sick and dying servant with a word and now he's made it to Nain and probably late in the day, close to dusk, and the buzz of excitement is still over his shoulder and Jesus approaches triumphantly. People all around him, people behind him are wondering and whispering about what they've seen they've heard from Jesus and wondering what this means for the fulfillment of God's promises. All the things that he said coming true and behold, that's what the text says in verse 12. Behold, Luke is saying, look at this, can you imagine? It's like the sharks and the jets meeting together for a rumble underneath the highway. There are two crowds coming together, coalescing, and there's a collision happening. Jesus, the life giver, is meeting a man who had died, and the congregation of rejoicers is coming into contact with a crowd of mourners shuffling off to the graveyard just outside the city. And behold, says Luke, meant to slow you down, to get you to ask the question, what will Jesus do when he encounters sorrow? What would you do? This isn't your city. (laughs) You're just a visitor. This is not your family. Maybe the best thing to do is to keep a low profile, to sort of hang your head a little bit, to walk more softly and quietly, hope to fade into the background until the funeral procession has passed by. That's what we do. You're sitting at a stoplight in your car on a beautiful late spring day and the windows are down and there's a soft breeze and the music is up and you feel great and suddenly mortality passes in front of your eyes because here comes the hearse and that long string of cars and they all have those orange flags on the hood. You didn't know the man. You turn down the radio and the lights change a time or two but nobody moves at least not until the cars are gone. And then the light turns green and eventually you pull away and the radio goes up and you leave the dead to bury the dead. Is this what you would do if you were there? See, Luke wants us to slow down and consider. He tells us, behold. And then he begins piling claws on top of claws to tell us about the dreadful sadness that was walking out of Nain that day. He says, a man who had died was being carried out. Well, there's, that's bad enough, isn't it? Nothing really out of the ordinary though, just a a person, just, just another person who's died like we all die, like we all will die if Christ doesn't return before then. And here's someone being carried out, and it's a tragedy, but it's not abnormal, and so he continues, a man had died, and by the way, he was the only son of his mother. Well, there's something. Parents who have experienced the grief of watching a child die explain it as a pain that is so sharp that it can never be forgotten. Benjamin Morgan Palmer was a pastor in the 19th century. And when his firstborn son was just shy of two years, he died of a wasting disease. He writes in one of his books later, he says, It is more than 40 years since then, and the frost of winter has whitened the hairs upon this father's head. But across the stretch of all those years, two hazel eyes, bright as coals of juniper, still burn before my vision. The memory is as fresh as yesterday of that oldish look coming out of eternity and resting upon the dying infant. Benjamin Blakely Palmer would be the first of five children that Benjamin Morgan and his wife would have to bury. He was followed in death by three teenage sisters later and then one more sister later in life so that out of six children born, only one survived, Benjamin Morgan and his wife. And you know, or at least you can imagine, the tragedy that happens when a parent has to bury a child. The anguish that comes at the death of your own children. But much more, says Luke. Not just a son, but a one and only son. In fact, the word is monogenes. It's the same word that John uses in the beginning of his gospel. Jesus, the only begotten son of the Father. This is the only one. He could have used a different word if maybe there were some sisters, maybe there were some others, but no, this is the only begotten, a son. And now he's died. Here was this dear woman's only begotten, carried on a stretcher, about to be laid in the grave and covered with a stone and with darkness. And then he goes on. A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. See, the march out of this town was even worse because she had done it before. Maybe it was years, maybe it was decades before, but she had been there on this road. And the custom was that you walked before the dead body. The first person in line was the person who was grieving, and so she walked out front with her son at her side, with her husband behind her. And her husband also was on a stretcher, headed to the place where she would bury a piece of her heart with him. And like a nightmare, it's happening all over again. And when she wakes up the next morning from this nightmare, she will know that she is alone. She had no protector in the ancient world as a widow. She had no one to watch over her and provide for her. There were no pension checks coming in, no Social Security, no, uh, no beneficiaries to, uh, to pay out to her. And there were very few opportunities for her to provide for herself. And she, she knew what this meant for her aging years. Widows in the ancient world were almost always thrust into poverty and pain and sorrow. And so Luke says, look, take a look at this. Behold, Jesus met sorrow outside the gates of a city of little importance. And when Jesus met this crowd, what did he see? It's a small thing. There were many. There were flute players. There were professional wailing women. Everybody had to hire at least one wailing woman and two flutes, we find, from ancient sources. What did Jesus see among the crowd? He saw the woman. He saw the individual suffer. That's typical Jesus. Because out of the faceless crowd, he finds the one who's suffering. He sees the woman, and it says he had compassion on her. Now, this word compassion in the New Testament, it talks about your insides. Your innards. This is a word that's speaking of spleen and, and liver and kidneys. The, the New International Version says that when Jesus saw her, it, <clears throat> excuse me, his heart went out to her. That's close. It's a little further south. This is the feeling of, of being on the roller coaster when it crests that first hill and it begins its downward curve and you suddenly find your stomach somewhere about your throat. Except this wasn't the feeling of weightlessness. It was exactly the opposite. This is Jesus in the flesh. very God, a very God, begotten, not made, the immutable, unchangeable, divine Son. This was God from before the foundations of the earth, and He was moved to compassion by the sight of a grieving mother. It's the mystery of the incarnation all over again. God who needs nothing, God who has everything, God who does not change, even though all of our years are rolled up like an old garment, and they're put somewhere away where we don't have to look at them anymore. God does not change, and yet this God became a man. He became a man who got hungry at the end of a fast. He became a man that when the sun shone brightly, his skin got burnt, and when the rain fell, his hair got wet. He was a man who got rocks stuck between his sandal and his foot, and he had to stop from time to time and pull them out. He was a man who saw this woman, this weeping mother, and his heart went out to her. He is God who has flesh Like you have flesh, He is God who has experiences like you have experiences, and He knows the heartache like you know heartache. And we read that promise in Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so does the Lord have compassion on those who fear Him. He knows our frame, He remembers that we're dust, and you get it. Intellectually, you get it. You can can trace out the simile. You know what it means for God to be high and mighty and yet to consider our frame. But what Luke is showing us, what he's telling us, is that in Jesus Christ, God has taken on our frame. He knows it by experience. He's the one who has entered our human world of sin and death and sadness, and he felt loss and separation and betrayal like you do. He's reminding us that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he tasted them. He's the same great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Now sits at the right hand of the Father so that we can be assured that when we turn to him with our anguish and our heartache, there is a man who receives us who knows what we're going through. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, Our Lord Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart is still as compassionate as when he was upon the earth. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong. He lives who made the widow's heart sing for joy. He lives to receive all laboring and heavy laden ones. He lives to heal the brokenhearted. And so we come first to see the compassion of Jesus. Come first to know the Messiah who walked the road of loss before us and the Messiah who now walks the road of loss with us. We come and see that in the vast crowd of mourners, Jesus sees the broken heart of the single sufferer and his heart goes out to her. And if you are his and you're a sufferer today, his heart goes out to you. His compassions never change. He is still ready to receive that we may draw near to the throne of grace. And so we see Jesus' compassion. Then once we've seen his compassion, we're ready to hear his words. And we're also ready to hear the hope that they speak. But if we were to isolate these words, they might sound cruel, almost inhumane. Could you imagine? Who would dare to approach a mother weeping at a funeral over the casket of her son and going up and saying, Stop crying. Dry your tears. Stop wasting your, your mourning over this one who's gone. It's, it's over, perhaps, would be the way that you would say it. But it would be the cruelest thing. It would, be, it would be the most callous thing ever spoken at a funeral unless the one who said it could actually do something about her situation. And that's what Jesus did. He spoke words to this woman to prepare her for something that she couldn't have begun to imagine happening. <clears throat> It's interesting that in the New Testament we find Jesus raising three people from the dead. He raises this young man in name. This is most likely the first. Uh, he also raises the daughter of an official named Jairus. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and of course, he raises Lazarus. Now, what's significant about each of those is that they are all begun at Jesus' initiative. No one asked him to raise any of those. They asked him to heal the sick. But they didn't go so far as to ask Jesus to raise the dead because nobody expected Jesus to raise the dead. And so he always stepped in of his own initiative and said, I will do this. And he always precedes these raisings with a word of encouragement, a word of expectation. That's how it happened with Lazarus. You could almost feel the desperation in the words of Martha and Mary. Jesus approached them and they said, Lord, if you had been here, hear that desperation, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Now, Martha gets a little closer. She seems to have a little bit more hope, but she doesn't get so far as to be bold enough to think that Jesus will actually raise her brother right there on the spot. In fact, when Jesus commands the tomb to uh, to be opened and the stone to be rolled away, you remember she is the one, Martha is the one, who says, Lord, he stinketh. And so she had to be led into it. She had to be taught what to expect of the Lord, to expect the unexpected. And the Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It was a word of expectation for Martha. The same thing happened with Jairus. He came to ask Jesus to heal a sick daughter, very sick, on the brink of death. But then when he was with her, as Jesus delayed to heal a woman who had a, an issue of blood for 12 years, word came from Jairus' household that his daughter had in fact died, and their word was, do not trouble the teacher anymore. She has died. Oh, there, there was an urgency up to a point, but now that urgency is gone. Now the time of, of doing anything has passed, and now we can only sit back and mourn. And these people may have been pre-scientific, but they weren't stupid. They knew that death is death. Thank you, Scott. They knew that death is death, and it's not the kind of thing that anybody comes back from. And so Jesus had to prepare them. Luke chapter 8, verse 50, Jesus, on hearing that the girl had died, said, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Expect the unexpected, Jesus was saying. Expect what you would not be bold enough to ask. And so it was with this woman. The funeral is passing by, and what can you do? Compassion is nice, empathy is nice, all of those things. Your condolences are great, but Jesus offers something more. He speaks a word of expectation to this widow. And then he speaks a word of power to her son. The text tells us in verse 14 that he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. Now, if you have one of those versions in front of you that says it's a coffin, you might get the wrong idea. Because the Jews didn't use a burial box with a lid. It was actually more like a large cradle, says Andrew Barnard of his his travels in Palestine when he saw a funeral. It was like a large cradle, like a trough that you would lay the body in. And everybody who was there could see the body being carried away. Everybody there could see that he was dead. Everybody could see that those who were carrying him were ceremonially unclean for the next week because they had come into contact with a dead body. And all day long, people had been touching this body. It was a labor of love. That's what you did. You washed it, and you anointed it, and you wrapped it for burial probably several women from the village had helped in the process and they had seen his graying skin and they had felt the coldness take hold of his flesh and while they worked they probably wept but the one thing that they didn't do with this body was speak to it. They might have mourned over it. They didn't speak certainly in a way that expected him to respond. They couldn't ask him to roll over so they could wash the back. They couldn't give commands to this body and yet Jesus approached and he too touched the uncleanness don't miss that. And he spoke to the body. Young man, I say to you, arise. And like so many of Jesus' miracles, it was a command that that body could neither hear nor obey all on its own. And yet by the work of the spirit, by the power of Jesus' words, the dead lived. It was like something from the Old Testament. And the people immediately remembered the work of Elijah and Elisha. They remembered the prophets of old who raised up dead sons and dried the tears of, of widows. Yet in an important way, it was very different from the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. You, you might remember 1 Kings chapter 17 when Elijah raises uh, the son of the widow who had kept him alive and fed during the time of the drought. She comes to him, and her son has died. And what does he do? Well, he first takes this son away from everybody else, up to the upper room, perhaps the balcony up there. He takes the child up and away, and he begins to pray. And then it's all very elaborate, because he lays upon the body, and he stretches himself out, and he does it three times, and then he prays again. At the end, he prays, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And at the end, we read that the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And it was a miracle. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before, and yet the prophet had no right to command that body. What could he do? He could pray. He could wait. He could long for the Lord's power, but he could not speak the dead into existence. He could only pray and wait. But that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't ask He didn't wait. He didn't think about what should happen next. It says that he went and he touched the buyer and they stood still and he spoke to the dead body. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Folks, this is the witness that we have in the Word. This is not a finely crafted, logical argument that you can chase from one point to another. This is not an observable, repeatable argument a testable hypothesis. This is a witness. Jesus spoke the dead into life. And you can believe this miracle or you can disbelieve this miracle, but this is what the Scriptures say to us, that Jesus speaks a word of power. Jesus Christ speaks life to them who are dead. He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, says Paul. Jesus is the same one who spoke universes were created. Who spoke and Sinai shook. Hebrews long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus spoke words of expectation, he spoke words of power because Jesus spoke the very word of God. with The power to raise the dead to life and the power to give hope to grieving hearts. And brothers and sisters, our Lord is still speaking. Every conversion of a sinner to salvation is evidence that God's word in Christ is still living and active. It is evidence, as James says, that by his own will, he has brought us forth by his word of truth. How are sinners brought to life? Dead in the trespasses and sins and the way in which they once walked, and yet God raises them up with Christ and seats them in the heavenly places. How does it happen? Well, James says, by his word of truth. He speaks life to the dead. It's evidence, as Jesus said, that whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And it's also a preparation for that hour that is coming when John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 says, all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of Jesus and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Dear friends, our Lord is the same yesterday and today and forever. He still speaks a word of compassion and expectation and hope. He still has the power to speak life to those who are dead. So what does that mean? It means that if you have children who have turned away from the Lord and are now walking the path of destruction, do not stop praying for them. Christ is the Lord who speaks life to the dead. It means that if you have neighbors who are hardened against the gospel, do not stop witnessing to them. Christ is the Lord who speaks life to the dead. It means that if you're struggling... With an indwelling sin that has mastered you time and time again, do not stop laboring to mortify the desires of the flesh. Don't stop crying out to the Holy Spirit to give you new life and new obedience. Christ is the Lord who speaks life to the dead. It means that if you are burdened by hopelessness and loneliness and rejection, do not stop praying that the Lord will give you fellowship and joy in the body of Christ. Jesus is the Lord who speaks life to the dead. I hope you hear this word of hope today. That Christ is alive and Christ is speaking by his word and spirit and by his word he still has the power to give life to the dead and to call into existence the things that are not. He still has the power to speak hope to your grieving heart. And So we've seen the compassion of Jesus and we've seen the hope of his words, but the passage ends with more speaking. Except this time, it's the crowd who opens their mouths, and finally we see the praise of the people. Uh, Shamelessly, I'm going to take my cues here from Phil Riken, who who divides this into two sections. He says, first, uh, the people speak a word of praise, and then they speak a word of witness. And we see first a, a word of worship or praise. That's what we've seen, actually, throughout the gospel. Anytime Jesus performs a miracle, people are amazed and they begin to worship, except uh, Luke here traces the the roots of this tree for us, this praise that's happening. As as everyone begins to glorify God, where does it come from? Well, it it comes from fear. They're filled with fear. They are gripped with fear. They're terrified, in a sense, you could say. And who wouldn't be afraid? Who could stand by Jesus speaking to the dead and they sit up and they speak? Who would be unaffected? You've read this passage maybe a hundred times. We're hearing it now through the lens of Easter. That was just about a month ago. We know the Lord is the resurrection and the life. That's why we gather every Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection and the power of Christ. That's why we're here. We know this, but the people who were here did not know this. They did not expect what Jesus was about to do. They were completely taken by surprise and they were completely filled with fear. Now, the theologians like to remind us that this fear isn't like the fear of something scary, like when you are in a haunted house or something like that. That It's really a reverential awe. It's a kind of humility. And and that's true, but don't don't dismiss the, the aspect of terror too quickly. There were people here who, I'm sure, were horrified, terrified, had no idea what was happening, didn't know what to think. Could you imagine how this mother's knees turned to jelly, as she watched her son sit up, there, there would have been almost a visceral humility worked in the heart of even the most proud person who was in that crowd. And they were gripped with fear. It was like the disciples on the lake when Jesus stilled the storm and they turned to one another, filled with fear, and they said, who is this? He commands the wind and the waves, and they die down. He commands the grave, and it releases its hold. He commands the dead And they sit up and begin to speak. Who is this? There is a fear here. And this fear drew them them into praise and worship. They gave glory to what they had seen. And it became a word of witness. And so it always is. Those who know something of the power of Christ must speak about it. We've seen it already in Luke. We see it again here. This report about Jesus, the last verse. This report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, what were they saying? They said two things. First, they said that in Jesus, a great prophet had arisen among them. Second, they said that God has visited his people. Now, don't be too harsh with them for that first statement. A great prophet was probably about as best as they could do. And that was good. Jesus is a prophet. He's much more than a prophet, but they could see, obviously, that Jesus was working miracles as Elijah and Elisha had worked miracles. He was a great prophet and much more. But that second statement gets a lot more close, a lot closer to to what was actually happening. They said, God has visited his people. Now, in the scriptures, God's visitation isn't something casual. We had some English friends at seminary who lived next door to us, and I learned uh, to answer my door when, uh, when Dimitri would knock on it, the way that he would answer his door when I knocked on his, he would say, come in, the kettle's just on. The kettle was almost never actually just on, but it was, a, it was an invitation. Here's a chance meeting, something casual. Come and grab a cup of tea, we'll sit together and we'll talk. God's visitation is not like that, it's not so casual, it's not so flippant. When God steps down, we don't say, oh, Lord, the kettle's just on. Let's sit and have a chat. No, the the visitation in in the scriptures, this is a concentrated act of covenant fulfillment. God visits his people either for covenant blessing or for covenant curse. You remember the people about to come out of Egypt, the Israelites. On the night of that first Passover, and Moses uh, did something. They're gathering their, their kneading bowls on their backs. They're taking whatever they can take to plunder the Egyptians. They're gathering their little ones And Moses grabs a box full of bones from 430 years earlier because it says, Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. What was it? It was covenant faithfulness. God will visit you. He will bring to fruition all that he has said. All of his promises will happen and they'll come true when God visits his people. That's what Joseph said. But then barely out of Egypt the people sinned at Sinai with the golden calf and the Lord threatened that he could not go among them into the promised land. Why? Exodus 32, he says, On the day when I visit, I will visit their sin among them. It was not safe for sinners to be visited by God. And so it is throughout the scriptures. God visits for blessing and for curse. God visits and brings his covenant to fulfillment. And when Jesus raised the son of the widow in Nain... This was the witness of the crowd God has visited. His word can be trusted. God's covenant is true. He will keep all of his promises. And so the God who made promise to keep and to heal and to raise up his people has come near, they said. The God who proclaimed in Isaiah that he would swallow up death forever and wipe away tears from all faces is making good on his promise. And here's just a tiny glimpse of it. But because of what they saw of Jesus, they proclaimed that God's word could be trusted. And this report about him spread. Very often when we read the scriptures, especially the narratives for us, we try to place ourselves in the passage. Where do we fit in? Where do I find myself in this narrative? So we... Imagine ourselves as David and we're slaying the giants of our life. We imagine ourselves as Esther and perhaps the Lord has raised you up for just this particular moment and you will be his instrument in the culture where he has you. We've done it already. Perhaps you're like this grieving mother and the Lord is speaking a word of compassion to you. But one thing is for sure. If you have experienced the power and the mercy of Christ to raise you to life, you are part of the cloud of witnesses. This is where you fit in. You're part of the body of believers. You're sent into the world to speak of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You are an ambassador. Excuse me. An ambassador sent out to proclaim that God's word is true and his covenant promises are yes and amen in Christ. By the blessing of his spirit, that word becomes something powerful. Not because of your eloquence not just because of the force of your own character and you're such a wonderful person. God God makes the witness of his people a powerful word of convincing and correcting and converting sinners, of drawing his people to himself. God actually speaks through the witness as we point one another back to God's word in the scriptures to give life to the dead. What a blessing that the Lord would include us in the work that he's doing. And the word that he speaks to a dying world. Brothers and sisters, this is what we find today in the scriptures. That Jesus is the one who speaks life to the dead. He's the one who speaks power into the midst of powerlessness. And he's the one who speaks hope to grieving hearts. will you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this word that you have given us. Thank you for the way that it teaches us about Christ, our Savior. And, O Lord, we pray that you would draw our eyes to him and open our ears that we would hear him speak to us. Even as we come now to your table, we pray that you would feed us upon the merits of Christ. Teach us more of him and more of our sin and more of our need. Teach us more of the way that Christ meets all of our needs with his righteousness, that you pour out blessing and abundance upon those who have been called to faith and repentance by your spirit. And so meet with us and feed us on the merits of Christ and cause us to receive his compassion. Make us your people to speak in the world the message of Jesus and his life-giving word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we come now to a table which proclaims to us the compassion of our Lord and Savior. His compassion, His love for sinners. He would not leave us in our sin, but He came.